Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. And I am in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I have on the program today, Debbie Millman. I'm very excited about this. She has a new book out called Why Design Matters. Conversations with the world's most creative people. I asked him, I said, what did it feel like? What did it feel like in 1984 when you were basically the most popular dude on the planet? What was that like? And he paused and he said that you have to be really careful when you get to the top of the tallest mountain in existence because it's often cold. You're almost always alone and there's only one direction to, to journey. So that is Debbie Millman. And again, her book is called Why Design Matters, Conversations with the world's most creative people. Debbie Millman is what we call a hyphenate. She is a creative hyphenate in the truest sense of the term. And she has a very impressive resume. This is a woman who is self-made and who has overcome enormous adversity and who by her own admission has made a lot of mistakes in her career. But what she does, I think exceptionally well, is learn from those mistakes. She's found a way to learn from them and to integrate the lessons, and she tends to be really good at whatever she sets her mind to. Debbie Millman is the author of seven books. She is an educator, a curator, a businesswoman, and, of course, a fellow podcaster. Many of you are probably familiar with her already. Her show is called Design Matters, and it's one of the OG podcasts, like literally one of the first podcasts, certainly in the creative space. And it's one of the most beloved podcasts in existence. Through the years, Debbie Millman has had conversations with hundreds of the most creative people in the world. Authors, artists, actors, musicians, designers, entrepreneurs, you name it. And that's really just the start of it. She was for 20 years the president of Sterling Brands, one of the world's leading brand consultancies. And during her time there and during her career in brand design, she had a hand in basically everything imaginable, everything that you know, from Burger King to Hershey's to Haagen-Dazs to Star Wars, she worked on it all. And Fast Company Magazine has called her one of the most creative people in business. 
She has served as the co-owner and editorial director of printmag.com. And as an educator, Debbie Millman co-founded the world's first graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York City back in 2010. Her writing and illustrations have appeared in a wide variety of publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, and more. And on the activism and philanthropy front, she is currently working with the Joyful Heart Foundation in collaboration with actor and activist Mariska Hargitay. The mission of this foundation is to eradicate sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse, and the rape kit backlog. And that's not all. There's, a, there's actually significantly more to Debbie Millman's life and career. But in the interest of efficiency, I'm going to stop trying to encapsulate her remarkable number of accomplishments and will instead encourage you to go online and do some reading about her. You will likely come away feeling uh, inspired, activated, possibly a bit overwhelmed. Debbie Millman is an artist and a teacher and a person for creative people. She is multi-talented and uh, very hardworking and is now celebrating the publication of this new book, which once again is called Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. I had a wonderful and enlightening conversation with Debbie Millman, and that is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton & Company, publisher of The Family Chow, the new novel by Lan Samantha Chang. Brimming with heartbreak, comedy, and suspense, The Family Chow offers a kaleidoscopic, highly entertaining portrait of a Chinese-American family that is grappling with the dark undercurrents of a seemingly pleasant small town in Wisconsin. John Irving calls The Family Chow, quote, a Dickensian drama of family conflicts and intrigues, an insightful comedy of the American immigrant experience and of a small town's inner workings. That's The Family Chow, the new novel by Lan Samantha Chang, available now from W.W. Norton and Company. So before we get going with Debbie Millman, I'm going to give you a quick update on my book, as I have been doing in a kind of uh, diaristic manner as I track my publication journey. (laughs) Uh, Let me tell you where things are and where I'm at mentally. For those of you who are new to the program, I guess I should give a little background. I have a new novel coming out in May. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And as of today, the book is at the printer. We are on track for publication on May 10th. And otherwise, there's not a lot going on other than the stuff that I'm trying to do to drum up PR and media coverage and so on. But I do have the audiobook recording session coming up relatively soon, so I guess that's something that's on the slate. Uh, we're just finishing up the contract, and I should be going into the studio to record the audiobook within the next month or so, I would imagine. And, you know, I will be the narrator. I'm going to be doing my own audiobook, which I'm pleased about. Otherwise, uh, I'm trying to decide if I should do events like whether or not I should make flights, reservations, and hotels, and do I try to do in-store events like we used to before the pandemic, or is COVID going to block the way? And if it does, do I really want to do Zoom events? Does anyone want to do Zoom events? Are we all sick of Zoom at this point? Were we ever not sick of Zoom? Have we had enough? 
I don't know. So there are some things to sort out. And I got to say, it would be nice to do a little traveling, go see some things, visit some cities that I don't normally get to, and maybe meet some readers and some listeners and say hello in person. We'll see what happens. I'll keep you posted. Otherwise, I'm feeling good. I think I have crossed over at least temporarily from the pre-publication anxiety stage into the calm resignation stage. (laughs) This is what publishing a book is like. You think it's going to be a big party. You think it's going to be the realization of your wildest dreams. And instead, what it is, is a slow and concentrated movement through the Kubler-Ross stages of grief which, uh, if my memory serves me, are like anger, bargaining, denial, depression, and uh, acceptance. And so if that is accurate, then I think what I was doing before in you know previous weeks was bargaining, trying to game it out. And now I'm in this weird phase where nothing is really happening yet, but the book is done. So maybe I'm in denial which is why I feel pretty good because it seems like it's not happening or if it is happening, it's happening somewhere else or to, or to someone else. So that's the good news. The good news is that I'm in denial, but the bad news is that I think depression is the next step. So you all have that to look forward to in future monologues. Just wait. It's going to be epic. It's going to be me talking in a hushed monotone accompanied by sad piano music as I struggle to come to grips with the vast chasm between dreams and reality. I do have some quick thank yous for people who have pre-ordered my novel. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available in May from IG Publishing. I owe a big thanks to Rachel White, Kevin Bonfield, Chris Gast, Siri Valdez, Tyler Barton, and Parsa Pazeshki. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And if you're out there listening and you would like to pre-order my novel, you can do that right now. Just go to bradlisty.com. It's all right there. What do you say? You can pre-order from whatever bookseller you like. And if you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, I will send you a note in the mail and some propaganda and other people's sticker. I might draw you a picture. Just DM the screenshot of your proof of purchase on Twitter or Insta to the show at other PPL on uh, Twitter and at other PPL dot podcast on Instagram, or you can email me. The address is letters at other com. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. 
Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So it is now time for the main event, my conversation with Debbie Millman, author of the new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. It is available right now from Harper Design. And it is what I suppose you would call a large format book, an art book, a coffee table book. I know this, it's a beautiful book. Incredibly well made and designed, as you would expect. And you're going to hear Debbie and I talk about that process, the process of getting the design right, which uh, I think you would imagine she would be invested in. The book features wonderful photography, and it also features prominently excerpts from interviews that Debbie Millman has conducted over the years with some of the world's finest creative minds. This is a terrific book to have on hand as a kind of desk reference if you're a writer or really if you're any kind of creative person. It's a great gift for the creative people in your life. And at its core, I think it's an instructive book. It is teacherly. It is loaded with wisdom. And you walk away from it feeling energized and edified and armed with valuable insight. And I think it's a book that functions as a really nice distillation of Debbie Millman's work in all of its permutations. And I just love talking with her. I got so much out of it, and I hope that the same is true for you. So let's get to it. Here she is, folks. This is Debbie Millman, and her new book, One More Time, is called Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. I try to start with a question that surprises my guest with the depth of my knowledge. So I ordinarily hope for either one of two responses. The first is that they laugh. And the second, which doesn't happen all the time, but certainly happens frequently enough for me to be able to say this, is somebody will say, how do you know that? Or where did you find that? And that icebreaker question, as I call it, really helps to establish a sense of trust in that the person I'm interviewing immediately understands that this isn't just a run-of-the-mill interview, that I am asking a question that surprises them in a way that gives them a sense of, what's the word I'm looking for? A bit uncertainty, maybe, in that it could go anywhere. This conversation can go anywhere because of the way in which I introduce the the first question. And you do a ton of prep. I yes, mean, I do. Uh, Even the first interview back in 2005, I always had a list of topics or bullet points. Now I have a fully scripted, for lack of a better way of putting it, document that allows me to pivot any which way my guest will go with an answer so that I can ask a whole range of questions about a specific topic if they take me there on their own. So I feel that somebody coming to an interview with me deserves my respect 
in that I don't want to waste their time. I don't want to give them an experience that is boring, monotonous, mechanical, robotic. I want to have a genuine conversation with them about something that they really care about and and that's their life and their work. And so the onus is on me. You know, people will ask me, especially when I work with a publicist or an agent, they'll say, oh, you know, does my guest have to do any work? What, what can they do to prepare? And I'm like, nothing. <laughs> Just come with an open heart because I do all the work. I want to give the person who I'm interviewing a really enjoyable conversation with somebody that respects their work, respects their practice, respects what they've created in the world and has knowledge about it and asks really interesting questions that allows them to have a conversation or explore their process or explore their origin story in a way that feels meaningful and, and adds to their life that day. And so I want to talk about the format of your show, which has changed about six years ago, you shifted from talking with one kind of creative, more or less, to talking with a wide range of creatives. I, I want to hear you talk about that decision and what it's meant to you as the host and also what it meant to the show and its listeners. I've always been interested in talking to a wide range of people. The early days, I was limited more by my access to different communities of people. And so even in my first couple of seasons, I spoke to Eric Kandel, who is a Nobel Prize winning physicist for discovering where memory resides in the brain. I spoke with Barbara Kruger. I spoke with Shepard Ferry. So I was speaking to different types of creative people as opposed to just designers, which is why the show was called Design Matters. But over the years, as the show has grown in popularity, I've just had more opportunities with people coming to me to ask to be on the show that were outside the realm of just designers. That's, that's sort of one part of the answer. The second part of the answer is I started to get a little bit bored just talking to designers. It was very inside baseball. And as I started writing books, as I started making more art than just design, I had opportunities to meet other people that were willing to come on the show. Initially, it was really just an experiment that I was doing back in 2004 when I was first approached by Voice America Business Network to do this show. First, I thought they were offering me a job. They weren't. They were offering me an opportunity to pay them to produce an online radio show, which I ended up doing just because at the time, I felt that my creative spirit had been diminishing every year I was only working on corporate design, which is what I was doing for nearly 20 years. Um, at that point, I was looking for anything to broaden my horizons and give me a sense of creative inspiration again. And at the time, I was limited by just the people who I knew. I mean, back in 2004, you know, we, what were we doing? We weren't doing that much online. There was no Facebook. There was no, um, even MySpace hadn't been developed back then for anybody that remembers MySpace. You know, we were emailing, we were shopping. Amazon was was certainly around, but it wasn't anywhere as near the behemoth it is today. We were gaming and there was porn. You know, that was basically it. And then there were these forums that turned into blogs and then Internet everything started to explode by the mid mid aughts. 
I started Design Matters as an experiment, never expecting that 17 years later, I would still be doing it. And so thankfully, um, I, I evolved along with the medium. And so now I really say that I interview any creative person that's making something interesting and talking about how they made the decisions to design their life the way that they have. And you've done quite a lot in your professional life, as you've just alluded to. You worked very successfully in branding and design. You uh, obviously have had great success with Design Matters. You have written books. And the thing that you believe that you do best, I've heard you say, is teach. Hmm. Well, I, I don't know. I'd like to think that I do it best. I think that I get the most sort of profound sense of meaning from teaching in that most of the people that I'm teaching are, and I would say most, not all, but sort of the average age of the students that I'm teaching are the age I was when I made some very early initial, really bad choices. <laughs> I'm, f I'm familiar about, with bad choices. I... About about how to live this in a first decade or so in my career. And so a lot of what I try to do is give them the courage to take steps that they might not otherwise have taken if somebody hadn't really, really encouraged them to do so. And so I feel that I have this opportunity to teach young people to do things somewhat differently than I did in order to have a slightly easier career path. Well, what that makes me think of is the way that our education system can often fail students. It's rare to find teachers who care that way. In my experience, I wish there were more of that. I wish there were more real life stuff rather than just straight academic stuff in our education system. Is that along the lines of what you're thinking about? Yeah. I mean, I think that I was profoundly impacted by a few teachers and professors as I was making my way through high school and college. And if it weren't for them, I would not have been able to have any kind of career at all even though it did take me a while to sort of ramp up, the teachers that I had were the first people that gave me the sense that I was smart, that I was capable, that I was creative, that I was talented. And that really gave me my first foundation of understanding what any contribution I made could be. And if it weren't for them, uh, you know, I can't even imagine what my life would be like. I had some remarkable teachers that influenced everything about the life that I'm living today. And having parents that really didn't give me much guidance and were often rather neglectful, they saved my life. My teachers really ended up helping me save my life. Yeah, you had a really difficult childhood. And suffered through, I've, I've heard you in past interviews talk about this, suffered through some pretty horrific abuse and kind of had to fend for yourself. And at far too young of an age, were exposed to the harshest aspects of existence or some of them anyway. And 
What struck me as I learned of this was something that you said as a kind of summing up. Insofar as your professional life is concerned, you had this idea that if you could take care of yourself in the world, nobody could get to you again. You know, it was a protective thing. And that really felt kind of like a Rosetta Stone statement in terms of your drive, the success that you've had in various roles and across different media. People who are super driven in this world and who accomplish quite a lot often, not always, but often have had to deal with enormous hardship and trauma in their youth. I mean, I think it's it's a double-edged sword in a lot of ways, or or even sort of quadruple. On the one hand, it did give me a lot of drive to be self-sufficient, to be in a position where I could feel protected. I could rely on myself that I could really take care of myself in ways that I hadn't been before. But on the other hand, it also, that drive also can create what, what people call idol aversion, you know, where you don't ever want to be still enough to have to rethink the things you're running from. And that busyness and that drive can sometimes often <laughs> cover up a, a really sort of mushy center. And that is not always a good way of remedying trauma, you know, by, by trying to outrun it because you can't. And sometimes it would be nice to just sort of feel as is, you know, who are you without the productivity? Who are you without the constant need for accomplishment or success or financial security? You know, what, what are you really afraid of when you're looking for all of those things? I don't know that you're really looking for those things as deliverables, so to speak. I think you're really looking to fill up a center that, that can often feel quite hollow. So have you had a reckoning? I mean, it's, I know that you um, have, again, spoken about this before, but you've done a lot of therapy. You've looked inward uh, to a degree that I think most people don't. And I have to believe that the work you've done in therapy and the work you've done as a writer and a communicator have helped to inform like perspective on this and have brought you to a deeper understanding. Maybe it wasn't always this, this way, but it's something that you've worked toward through the years to get to the place where the mushy center, as you describe it, is not something that you're necessarily as prone to repress or avoid. It's something that you've tried to reckon with. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a regular practice <laughs> right. because those neural pathways were created so long ago and the ease in which one can fall back into those old patterns is, is rather remarkable. <laughs> and and so, yes, it is something that I, I still work on a great deal and, and still have, have issues with and, and really have to still be very mindful to not fall back into really easy patterns for me that help me feel better in the moment, but in the grand scheme of things, aren't really helping. The conversations that you've had through the years with, I, I would characterize them as like elite creatives, people of great creative accomplishment, 
how have they helped to inform not only your creative life, but your personal life too? You learn so much from the people that you talk to, especially at depth. I'm, I'm wondering about maybe some of the deeper lessons that you've drawn from the conversations that you've had and how you feel it has enriched and informed uh, you know, both your professional life, but I, I think in particular your personal life, <laughs> the way you move well, through the world. Yeah. I mean, design matters is the gift that keeps giving it. It is remarkable how much I've learned just by listening and observing my guests. The, the notion that even the most gloriously creative people in the world still struggle with their own meaning, their own purpose, their own goodness, their own creativity and talent sort of gives me a sense that that's just the process of being a creative person, that curiosity, that deep questioning, that reckoning, that daily reckoning is something that actually gives me a lot of comfort now because I have yet to meet someone that is profoundly creative that isn't constantly doubting what they're doing. Actually, no, let me correct that. There were two people that I interviewed in the 17 years I've been doing this that really had no more fucks to give. That was Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli. They've both passed on, sadly, two of the greatest designers to have ever lived, two of the most important designers of the 20th century. And I think that in, in looking back on my interviews with both of them, I think the fact that they were both in their mid-80s gave them a sense of just being okay as is. And they were the only two people who I've ever interviewed that seemed to be just utterly and completely content with who they were. I, I learned something from Seth Godin that there's a real difference between pleasure and happiness. Pleasure is something that I, I would say is accomplishment, for example, and that you can never get enough. You can never get enough pleasure. You always want more. You always want more accomplishment. You always want the next promotion. You always want the newest, better, whatever. But happiness is really just content with things as is. And Milton and Massimo really both exhibited that to me. Now, it might also be because they're older white men. Who knows? But they were two people that just seemed to be utterly okay with who they were and, and their lives were. And, and they were both still working. And that might also be part of it as well, that they were into six, seven decades of, of making things. Everybody else, I, there's always that question. Am I doing okay? Am I still going to be able to do it tomorrow? Am I still going to be able to do better work in the future than I have in the past? And that's something that I actually am feeling now at 60 grateful that I wasn't an early bloomer <laughs> because the last thing I would want is to look back on my life and think, oh, I did my best work in my 20s. No, no, I'm still hoping that I'll do my best work in my 80s. And some people do. And that's a very worthy thing to remember because I think we live in such a youth-obsessed culture. Uh, I, I speak for writers. You know, if you're not the wonderkind, if you're not the person who comes out of the gates in their 20s with the big hit novel or something, you know, or if you're, you know, you get into your forties and fifties and it hasn't happened for you yet. It's tempting to think that it never will, or that you've missed your moment and that it's just doomed. But the truth is that is the truth is different. You know, people are doing really vital work and interesting things 
well into their 80s now. Oh, absolutely. I do think that the visual arts somehow is kinder to older artists and creatives than, say, the literary community or the math community, the science community, where there's this tremendous pressure to make it your debut novel, your your first theorem, all of these things, there's an expectation that you're doing that in your 20s. Even for scientists, you know, if you haven't come up with your big breakthrough idea scientifically in your 20s, you know, you seem to lose brain cells and by the 30s you're considered, you know, old. Athletes as well. There's an expectation that you're going to make it very young when you're have have the highest capacity physically. I feel really comforted by the idea that artists and designers don't have that quite that same expectation. Now, sure, there's 30 under 30 and 40 under 40, but there's still a lot of room at the table for elder statesmen in the art community and in the design community. I'm trying to think of why that would be. And the, like the first thing that comes to mind is maybe that the work doesn't show the artist's age as much as say a novel would. Usually you're writing about some extension of your own experiences, though, though not always. Or, you know, and obviously if you're on camera, there's no hiding it uh, to a certain point. Is that Do you think that there's some truth to that, that maybe it's because the work itself doesn't betray the age of the person who created it quite so easily? It's a great question. Certainly in design, you're working with a client, you're working for a client. And so the objectives and the needs change per project. And so you're still able to be age agnostic, no matter what you're doing. In in terms of the art community, I would say that artists go in and out of style. And as you build a body of work, that body of work can be discovered very late in a person's career. And that sort of heft of work can go a long way in showing a person's genius at, at, a, young, at, a, at a later age. So, and that's happening more and more, which is quite extraordinary and, and, and really wonderful. I was just going to say, I think that's the gambit that most of the writers that I have on this show are making whether they know it or not, uh, just because literary fiction is so tough. I mean, it's such a tough market. And oh, yeah. there are people doing wonderful, wonderful work, but not receiving nearly the recognition that I would argue that they deserve. You know, the culture doesn't embrace it as much as it should. But I think over time, especially at volume, you know, if you build the body of work, as you say, and its quality, you like to believe that eventually the recognition will come and that people are going to see it and appreciate it. Well, Brad, I've talked about this before on my podcast. I've talked about it in conversations with other people. And I think I repeat it as often as I do because of how profound it is. <laughs> so forgive me if I'm being redundant for any listeners that have, might have heard me say this before. But one of the most profound things that anyone has ever said to me on my podcast was said by David Lee Roth, the former lead singer of Van Halen. And I interviewed him several years ago, and I was very much alive during his peak moment uh, in 1984 when Van Halen's album 1984 came out. It was the most popular album, one of the most popular albums at the time, along with albums by Michael Jackson and so forth. 
and he had the biggest tour and he was all over MTV. And I mean, he had everything, you know, total sex, drugs, rock and roll personified. And he's done a lot of work since he was on my show to talk about work he was doing in the tattoo industry. But I had to ask him, I said, what did it feel like? What did it feel like in 1984 when you were basically the most popular dude on the planet? What was that like? And he paused and he said that you have to be really careful when you get to the top of the tallest mountain in existence. Because it's often cold. You're almost always alone. And there's only one direction to to journey. (laughs) And it suddenly occurred to me in that moment, like, I don't want to peak until the day before I die. You know, I'm happy to take now, I can say it, I didn't feel that way in my 20s and 30s, and even into my 40s. But I like to take that slow mountain to the that slow journey up to the top of the mountain, if I can, if I'm lucky enough. And, and to be able to sustain that and keep growing is a gift that I think people don't always quite understand in their race to the top. You know, you still have to keep hitting those balls once you get all the way up there if you want to stay relevant. And that's really hard to do. There aren't very very many people that have done it. Yeah. And it's like to have that happen to you, I think they were in their 20s. They were young, right? I mean, the vertigo of catching a wave like that and suddenly being up there so quickly, not without much life experience to go by. That's got to be a little bit disorienting. And I have to say, too, that in my past listening to podcast interviews, one of the most memorable interviews I ever heard, and I'm now wondering if it was yours, was with David Lee Roth. He is an incredible talker, that guy. He is. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> he can go. It's like, just wind him up and go. But he just, he he talks really fast. I don't know if this if this was the case with yours. We're like, like very fast talker all over the place, but there's like a an odd cohesion and poetry to it all. Absolutely. 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 I I agree. Absolutely. So I want to talk about your book, which is kind of a, a testament to all the work that you've done over the past 17 years, having these conversations and what led to wanting to do it now, you know what I'm saying? To kind of take, cause you're still going, you're still talking to people, but you put together this book, which kind of memorializes the conversations that you had in at least the first phase of the operation. You just talk about its origin story. The origin story is, is rather simple. I have a wonderful agent, Charlotte Sheedy. I met her when she was representing uh, a group of friends and me as we were creating a book about the great graphic designer, C.P. Pinellas, who Uh, was one of the most important designers, but certainly also female designers of the 20th century. And we were creating a a book about her and a book of recipes in a journal that were both drawn and written out that Wendy McNaughton and Sarah Rich found at a flea market. And so we were creating a book around this huge find and Wendy's agent was Charlotte Chidi, who then became my agent, Charlotte, thought it would be an interesting idea to to try to sell. I had thought about it years ago, and anyone that I had talked to in those first years when I first, first thought about doing it were like, no, why would anybody be interested in that? The interviews are already out there. They're free. No, 
And so I really had put it out of my head. And when Charlotte thought about the possibility of, of doing something, I was like, well, if you think, if you think it's a good idea and she did, and I had a book deal. Wow. <laughs> it's really all Charlotte Cheedy. <laughs> okay. And, but there are some creative choices that I want to ask you about. Uh, Absolutely. I have the book right here. This is a lovely book. And this Thank is a, you. this is a substantial piece of, uh, literature. It's, it's heavy. That's some plunk value. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so, you know, cause I've had this thought too, you do enough of these conversations. You're like, wow, I wonder if you could take some of the best of them and put it into a book somehow to try to make sure you capture it. And it's a very labor intensive project to go through all the, first of all, you get all the transcripts done to go through it all, to do the editorial and make those choices. But then the choice to do it in this larger format, which I think with your design background and with so many visual artists involved in the project through the years makes a lot of sense. But I love that about this in that you can kind of sit down with it. It's the kind of book you can have on your coffee table. And if you're a creative person like me, you can sit down and pick it up and kind of dip in and get like a hit of inspiration. <laughs> it's perfect for that. And it's also just has the added benefit of just being lovely. Like it's, it's lovely to the touch, even, you know, the page quality, the photography, and then the cover design, which I want to have you talk about. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I cannot imagine Debbie Millman's book not having great design. And of course it does have great design. So I'd just love to hear you talk about the decision to go into this format and then talk about some of the visual aspects of, of the book in particular, maybe starting with the cover. Sure. Well, thank you for saying all those lovely things. It, it really was a labor of love. This this book uh, was a lot of work, but it was also fun and, and, and really enjoyable in a lot of ways. The cover. So <laughs> I originally hired Paul Sayre. I, I hired isn't the right word. I, I asked him, I begged him, I commissioned him to work with me as my designer. And Paul Sayre is one of the great, great book designers of our time. I don't think a year goes by when one of his covers doesn't make the top 10 covers in the New York Times list every year. And he's a good friend of mine. He's the husband of one of my best friends. And I had always, always wanted to work with him. And so he agreed and we started working together. The format I was pretty sure on from the very beginning, uh, HarperCollins also publishes Michael Beirut, another really remarkable designer. He is also featured in the book and he had published a monograph many years ago that was also 10 by 10, which is which is the size and, and shape of my book. And so I was very interested in doing something that way. His was chock full of little images, big images, all sorts of, of photographs of, of his work all throughout. Whereas I was looking for something very single-minded. I wanted all of the photography to be one photograph per person, really engaging who they are through their eyes. And I, I can talk a little bit about the photography because initially I was going to do a photo shoot and then COVID hit and I couldn't. Paul and I had a very mutual idea about what we wanted the cover to be highly typographic. We did a design, we sent it to HarperCollins and they were like, oh, this is really beautiful, but no, uh, it's too similar to Michael Beirut's book, which it really wasn't, but I could see where there might be some overlap, but that book came out six years ago and I didn't really think people would get confused. And then they let me know that, oh no, Michael's doing an updated version. It's coming out the same month your book is coming out. So no, 
you can't do something that's that's so typographic. And we were crestfallen. Little did we know that COVID was going to actually create a four-month delay on the release of my book, and there would be absolutely no chance that the books would be near each other in the recently released column <laughs> of design books. But nevertheless, Paul and I, you know, it's it's really true about design. If you don't get it in the first round, it's very unlikely you're going to be able to catch that wind in any subsequent round. Hmm. And Paul, and I don't know why that is in design. I don't know. What I can tell you is that Paul and I worked on an additional 90 covers and none of them got approved. And then Paul decided that perhaps he was not the best person to work on this project with me. And though I was devastated, I really absolutely understood. Charlotte then suggested that I work with somebody that she's known for his whole life. Charlotte also represents Myra Kelman. And Myra Kelman has a son named Alex Kelman. And Alex is a full-fledged designer of his own. He has really good stock. His dad was the late great graphic designer, Tibor Kelman. And uh, I couldn't believe that he would be interested in working with me, but Charlotte was able to persuade him to do so. And he picked up where we left off and created, helped create this cover. I had the idea based on one of the options that he had submitted. He had done a, a design with a big question mark and the dot of the question mark was a scribble. And I didn't like the question mark, but I loved the scribble. And so I said, what about using the scribble device? And so we, I then drew about 70 scribbles and landed on the one that's currently on the cover. That's the yours. typography is all, yeah, the typography is all Alex's, but the scribble is, is one of my own. Yes. Okay. And so for somebody with your design chops and career success to be involved in this process where your publisher is saying no to ideas that you're submitting, how did that hit you? Like, like, I guess they have their, their own expertise and thoughts about what makes books sell and all the rest, but you know, it's one thing if I'm that way, I don't know anything about design, but you know, design. So did you bristle? Was it tough? Oh my God, there were projectile tears. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, do you know who Paul is? <laughs> right, right. And they did. <laughs> well, what can I say? I have been through so many global redesigns that there is virtually no response that I have not experienced. So I had to sort of weigh the 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 way in which I would respond and initially I was very patient and understood that they know better I think because this is what they do although Paul is really accomplished and has an incredible track record so at the, initially I was very much in the in the realm of well they want this to be a real success and so I'm going to heed their their comments by you know design 72 78 83 91 you know then i was about on my last fuse <laughs> so when paul resigned i i i wanted to resign right along with him but <laughs> but you stuck it out and so I then said, alex comes in that's correct right in. yeah he came in and and just 
breathed a whole new life into the design process. He was remarkable and optimistic and collaborative. And I mean, Paul was all those things also, but as I said, by, by design 72, he was beginning to get annoyed. <laughs> Tap out. Right. So, okay. Rightly so. And, and, and towards the end, it wasn't that he was resigning because he didn't want to work with me. He was resigning because he didn't think he'd be able to solve this problem of the cover. And, and, and fortunately um, we were able to do this in a way that really respected our, our, practices and our our career needs and also our friendship which was super important to me because he's like family and I didn't want to you know have that uncomfortable sort of fight with my brother feeling at at any dinner experiences sure of course and I'm curious to know because I'm sure you've been through this in past um, work situations where you've had one designer take a project to a certain point and then switch to a different designer to get some fresh ideas or a new perspective to try to, you know, get it over the line. And when you say that Alex came in after iteration 91 or whatever on Paul's end, did you give Alex what you had already done or did you let him come in and just start with a completely clean slate? I'm curious about those kinds of transitions and what works best. Well, I was a bit at my wits end when Paul left and Alex came in because I didn't want Alex to make any of the same mistakes. And part of what I think was missing and something that I always urge all of my clients to do at the very, very beginning of any branding project was really provide a criteria for success. You know, what, what is success when evaluating what is going to be created? How do you know when something is going to be good. And that wasn't done with with the book at the outset. This was not something that was ever literally and figuratively put into a creative brief where you have a page that, that outlines exactly what you're hoping to accomplish. And so for the second time around, I was a bit firmer with the folks at HarperCollins in really hoping that they could create criteria that would allow Alex to understand what they were looking for and what that would result in. And so before we, we had our kickoff meeting, I was very clear with the HarperCollins folks, I need you to be able to explain to Alex what your criteria for success is with this cover, because we have not been able to do that with Paul. He spent a lot of time, energy, and heart on doing this work for me. It was good work. So it's not about not being good, not being creative enough, not being interesting enough. I need for you to be able to understand, to get to get Alex to understand what you need, because I have not been able to do that. And so we came to this first Zoom meeting, and I was very excited to hear what their criteria was going to be. And then they didn't have any. And that's when the tears really came because it was one of those, we'll know it when we see it kind of conversations. And that I felt was going to create in the same spinning wheel for Alex to then embark on. And I did not want that to happen. Fortunately, it didn't. But it wasn't because he was given any better direction. I think that he saw what had been rejected and was able to sort of pick up 
the threads of those rejections and carve a new path that allowed for some success. Hmm. I think it's completely reasonable to want some criteria. <laughs> you think? I got to say, yeah. And I, but I also, you know, I can also understand like, well, we'll know it when we see it. I think I've had that thought and that feeling before, but if you're going to send somebody off on a wild goose chase over 91 iterations, yeah, that's a lot to ask of somebody. Well, now, and now I have a really fun presentation that I make where I show those different covers and it's set to the music. And it's, it's a crowd pleaser. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, it, it seems in a way kind of poetic and fitting that the design process for the cover of this book would have some drama infused into it since that's at the core of your professional life. Right. I mean, it seems like maybe there's something there, <laughs> like a way of looking at it that would make it make sense and that it would uh, turn out so well in the end. You know, it had to be a struggle. It, it was. And I can tell you, though, that I'm really happy with the cover. I love my cover. I love my cover. And I don't know that we would have been able to get there without Paul's foundation of work. The clarity that emerged when Alex took over, I think only happened because of the amount of energy and time Paul and I spent exploring other paths that ultimately we didn't take. And reflecting on your past work in uh, brand design, is this kind of extended iteration process and like hand wringing and just the challenges of it, is that more the norm? I mean, you said earlier that if it doesn't come out on the first pass, typically it's not going to happen. Like usually it's kind of like at least the the basics of it, the framework of it is there on an early iteration and then you refine it from there. But just in terms of process, like did this distinguish itself or is it kind of in the same ballpark of how it usually goes when a good design is created? It really depends, Brad. I mean, I've been working in branding now for over 30 years and then you do get those epiphany moments like Milton had with the I Heart New York, like Paula Cher had with the Citibank logo, where all of the decades of coming up with ideas and finding connections, creating those combinatorial connections that allow for really new and interesting ways of seeing things, that that only happens after real decades of, of putting in the work. I think that generally speaking, if you can show the seeds of an idea, as you said, something that somebody can identify and connect with in that first phase, by no means do you come up with a full on identity in the first round. But if you're showing six or eight design possibilities in that first phase exploratory generally speaking if people can really all connect with one or two of those and feel attracted to something in them the chances are of this being successful over the long haul are much stronger than when you see a first round and there's nothing that connects with you i often urge designers that i work with now and, and teach that if they don't feel that connection with the work in that phase, that it's absolutely critical that you bring that up and say, you know, I'm sensing that you're not really connecting with anything in this phase. Because otherwise, what ends up happening, people are so conflict avoid, they, they conflict avoid so deeply that 
it's much more likely that you're going to hear that they didn't like anything in a conversation on the phone or in an email. It's very rare for people to say in an environment like that, especially when you know you have such fragile egos, that no, we hate everything. We really hate everything. And that's what you need to hear right. in order to be able to recover in that moment and say, you know what, we're going to we're going to start over. And I learned that the hard way. I learned that years and years and years ago, I was working with Lucas licensing for all of the merchandising for Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. And this is when I was president at Sterling Brands. And we were so excited about this work. We thought we'd hit it out of the ballpark. We thought that we had created the new iconography for a new Star Wars. And we got to the meeting and we were showing the work. And I can tell by the faces of, of my clients that they weren't quite getting it. At the end of the presentation, there was no applause. There was no wows. There was no big eyebrow raise. It was just like, hmm. And you know that hmms are never going to lead to you guys nailed it. It's always going to end up with an email three hours later saying, now that we've had a chance to look at the work, we really aren't seeing anything we love. And and you want that. We hate everything in, in that meeting. You want that response because then based on your way of responding to that, you can see that the relationship is still going to be able to move forward by the way in which you respond to their hating everything as opposed to being defensive and walking out of the room or trying to convince them that they're wrong when they know their brand really well and chances are you're the ones that didn't get it. And so I actually ended up stopping the meeting that day and saying, you know what? And it was the first time in my career I ever did it. I'm sensing you're not loving this work. Let us go back, redo this. We'll see you in a week. And that's really the only thing that kept us from being fired that day. Wow. I was just, I was just going to say like most, I, I'm thinking of, of this through a writerly lens where things happen in a more solitary way, typically like the writer is on his or her end of things kind of noodling and might get an email or a call or a zoom or whatever, but it's, it's not quite as interpersonal. And what occurs to me as you're talking about this is like, not only do you have to have the chutzpah to speak up and speak clearly and honestly and to catch it in the moment. But it like, there's a level of emotional mastery involved because you know, your ego's on the line a little bit. That's your work. That's not registering. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to be able to check that in the moment and just shelve whatever personal feelings you might be having in the service of the larger project. And it's an, it's an attribute. It's something that I wish I was better at is having that courage and that kind of bluntness but also a certain delicacy because too much bluntness <laughs> can yeah. get you into trouble. You know, it's a real balancing act and some people get really good at it. I imagine it's trial and error, but kudos to you, especially in something as high stakes as star Wars. I mean, that's a big, that's a big account, right? Oh my God. It was life changing. It was life changing. But I remember we were so arrogant in the, in the moments before the meeting, I remember being in the parking lot at Skywalker ranch and we were high-fiving each other in the parking lot. <laughs> we were so self-congratulatory, like, look where we are, we've made it. And maybe that had something to do with the way in which we were presenting and, and the ultimate response. But I, I'm glad that that experience happened in the way that it did in an effort to really learn about 
being better able to read the room. <laughs> yeah. What may I, may I ask, was George Lucas there? Are you talking to George? No, Lu- no, no, no. Just no. their marketing people. No. I don't even know that George Lucas knew that this was even happening. This was the head of marketing and they had a relationship with Hasbro who was manufacturing all of the merchandising. And so those were the folks in the room. Wow. The room where it happened. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you. I mean, your book is about, uh, it's called Why Design Matters. Your show is called Design Matters. Your life and career have been devoted to design. I think professionally, a lot of it has to do with visual art and visual design and branding. But I think the word design also applies to like lifestyle design and the way in which people who are creative and who are successful and who live what you refer to as a remarkable life often have great skill in designing the life that they want to lead? That's such a, that's such a hard question because I think that a lot of what you're talking about is based on a person's innate personality and the way they're parented and what they feel entitled to have and what they are courageous enough to go after. And I think everybody approaches those their own lives with with different criteria for success no pun intended here um you know i didn't think that i was capable of anything i really felt that i was damaged and not as good as anybody else and all of those years in my 20s and 30s was really just trying to convince myself that I deserved even to be alive. And it wasn't until much later in life that I started to really try to go after things that I wanted. When I, I think it was at that point, I realized that any kind of rejection or failure wasn't going to kill me. It wasn't going to set me, you know, push me over the edge, so to speak. And, and that came from doing a lot of work just to feel worthy to go after things. So it's very hard for me to say for other people, you know, what designing their own life means. I don't know that you can really design a life until you feel like you're worth being alive. And that can happen at any different time for any different person. I haven't heard it put quite that way, but that makes a lot of sense. You have to be at a certain point, like spiritually yeah, <laughs> or emotionally, yeah. before you can even begin to contemplate such things. But taking that into consideration and taking your particular life and career as the example, there was a course you took with Milton Glaser, and I, I got that yes. name right, right? And yes. It was Milton that you took after interviewing him that was very meaningful to you and speaks to this a bit. And I'd love to hear you talk about it. I know you've talked about it before, but it's such, it had such a great impact on you and you've seen it also have a great impact on students of yours that I would like for my listeners to hear you talk about it. Well, I, I was very lucky in 2005 I was able to, and this was before I was teaching at SBA, so it had nothing to do with my being on the faculty there. 
I was able to take a class with Milton Glaser that he gave to mid-level designers who were looking to sort of reignite their creativity. And it was a summer intensive at the School of Visual Arts where he had been teaching for, at that point, I think 40 or so years. And in the introduction to the class, he talked about how this was one of the most, if not the most important thing that he felt that he he had been doing in his career, which is pretty remarkable for a person who had already won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. <laughs> so it's it's rather remarkable that this was something that that he was saying. One of the centerpieces of the class was creating what he referred to as a five-year plan. And he asked us to write an essay as if it were five years into the future. And he was um, asking us to imagine a life that we could have if anything we wanted was possible, if we would not fail at anything that we attempted to do. And he urged us to really put our hearts and souls into the essay because he had seen over the decades that he'd been teaching how so many of his students would manifest these lives five years or so into the future. And so I was like, oh, this sounds like magic. I'm going to put my whole heart and soul into this because, you know, even three or four of the things come true. I'm going to have like the best life. <laughs> <laughs> And so not only did I write this long as I also wrote out a list of everything that, that I wanted to happen and was very specific and within, I would say, well, certainly within the first two years, things started to manifest within five years, I would say a good three or four or five things happened. It took me about, I would say 15 years for everything to manifest. But again, I had pretty lofty goals. And I didn't even realize it until the first year after I, I happened to be going through the journal that I had written this essay in, came upon it. And I was like, oh, wow. Wow. Oh, my God. Like, this, this was, like, really profound. And I can look back on that list now and say that every single thing happened. Every single thing. That's pretty remarkable. And I decided that when Milton stopped teaching – to, to ask him if I could begin teaching that exercise with my students. And he said, yes. And because my students were so much younger and are so much younger than I was when I took his class, I was in my forties at the time that I wanted to give people, and because of my own experience, I wanted to give people a bit more runway. So I changed it to a 10 year plan. And so now I teach that to my undergrads and my grads. And I also talk about it a lot with people that, that, find that it resonates with them as well. I'm actually creating a really beautiful card deck to help guide people through the exercise that'll be out, I think, in 2023 at some point. Oh, interesting. And yeah, because like just to drill down a little bit into the actual nuts and bolts of the essay, you're describing a day 10 years into the future. Yep. Is you it a, wake it, up. It's a day. You, it's one day. So if we were doing it today, it would be January 24th, 2032. And I ask people to write it in the present tense. So I wake up and what happens? Okay. You tell your life story in that day. And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, what if I'm doing a lot of different things? Then have a lot of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> right. So in my in my 10-year plan, I met with gallerists and I met with editors and I met with 
um, musicians and, you know, had a, had a partner and pets and really nice house and a Jeep. And I still, and now I have a Jeep and I completely forgot that I had, that I had written that I had a Jeep. And now I have a Jeep. It's crazy. Well, this is lifestyle design. I mean, this is yeah, life design. Yeah. I mean, in that in that case, I do feel like you are making very intentional choices about where your life can go and whether that subliminally impacts the way in which you approach things or if just the declaration of putting it out in the universe, not that I'm a big woo-woo person, but there is an aspect of woo-woo-ness to this exercise. Um, what I can tell you is that I've had a lot of the same results that Milton had. I have students writing me three years, five years, 10 years, and and telling me that after taking, after writing this exercise, that these things did happen for them too. Yeah, there's power. What it makes me think of is there's power in writing something down. Like yes. it's one thing to have it up in your head, kind of rolling around up there secretly, but putting it down on the page or on the screen or whatever, externalizing it makes it you know, realer. I think that there is something because the students get really, really bent out of shape about having to share this. And they do. I, that's part of the exercise. I had to share it with my class in Milton's um, in Milton's classroom. And so I ask my students to do the same. And, and they don't have to read anything that they feel is intimate or that's embarrassing. But I do ask them to try to share as much of it as possible, because I do think there's something very specific about the declaration of stating it, of, of saying these are the things that I'm doing. These are the things that I want. These are the choices that I've made that lead me to this result is very, is very powerful. It's like putting yourself on the hook a little bit, even if it's just your bit, classmates, yeah. you know, you say it yeah. out loud and then you're like, oh damn, now I got to do this. <laughs> well, I also think that by the virtue of hearing other people share their lives in, in five years, that it also gives people permission to want more things. And so it's not unusual that after the sharing that people go back and revise and I give people the opportunity to do that. If, if you feel that by listening to others, has inspired you to want more, then go and do that. Then declare that too. Is this kind of intentionality something that you see consistently in the lives and work of the people that you interview, all of whom are super accomplished? Uh, like what, what are some of the consistencies in approach? Obviously they're doing different things, but uh, for people listening, you know, my show gets a lot of people who are writerly listening, but I'm just wondering like the really successful creative people that you speak with like what are some of the the through lines that you've picked up on over the years in talking to them the one thing that i think one of the through lines i guess there are a few um one is that the people that i interview believe that what they're making is worth putting out there and that takes a lot of courage I think that the people that I interview, for the most part, seem to want a lot out of their lives and their work and also feel like they deserve it. You know, a lot of people make things and never share these things because they're afraid of rejection or judgment or embarrassment. And I don't think that the people that I interview 
have that as their lead gene. And, and I think quite a lot of people do, especially um, young people now, because there's such pressure to make it when you're young. More so, I think, even than when I was leaving college. And I certainly felt a lot of pressure, but the pressure now with social media and the way people compare and project, it's, it's I think, quite, quite nerve-wracking. And that's, that's a bit of an understatement. I think it's, it's paralysis-inducing. Well, something you often say is that courage is more important than confidence. <laughs> yes, you yes. Know. And that's actually something that I learned through Danny Shapiro, the writer Danny Shapiro. She and I were talking after I interviewed her for my podcast, and she saw a whole stack of books that were on my desk at that point. For whatever reason, three or four books had come out that year on confidence. And for me, that's always been the holy grail. You know, how do I get confidence? And so here were all these books on my on my desk and she looked at them sort of casually and said, Oh, I think confidence is really overrated. And I was like, what, what, (laughs) 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 What? how could you say that? That's my Holy grail. And she said, well, I think it's, you know, most really overly confident people are kind of obnoxious. I think what's more important is courage. And it changed my life, changed my life. You know, the step to go to take into the unknown is far more important, you know, confidence. And I spent the next year thinking, well, what is the definition of confidence? And ultimately what I've come up with is confidence is the successful repetition of any endeavor. You know, as you're about to do it, that the chances are you can predict based on prior behavior that you will be successful at doing it. So we all have car confidence, you know, getting into our cars. We're not thinking about all of the terrible possible outcomes. We have car confidence. If we're able-bodied, we have walking confidence. Humans don't come into the world knowing how to do pretty much anything. Why would we expect that we could do anything well having not practiced and failed before? We can't even walk, talk, eat, or poop without learning how to do it. And so, or learning how to do it in a hygienic manner. (laughs) (laughs) So why would we think that we could play the piano or design something or hit a baseball without a lot of practice? And through that practice, we then develop an innate sense of being able to do it based on the, the ability to have done it before. And that is what builds confidence. So I want to talk about ambition a bit and balance. These are issues that I struggle with in that I I feel like, you know, you talk about social media and the pressure that young people feel as an example to succeed and that sense of competition. And there's only so many seats at the table. And if I don't get one, I'm doomed and yeah that well that's also something i learned from from milton you can see the world as a world of abundance or as a world of scarcity and and i don't mean to interrupt you but it's such a perfect thing to talk about because i had always approached my life as a life of scarcity this is my last chance for this my last chance for success my last chance for love my last chance for whatever and milton suggested living a life where you consider the possibility that we can share and there is enough for everyone if we do that. And so life can be a life of abundance if we all share with each other, as opposed to a life of scarcity where we have to just hold on to everything because we think this is the last time we're ever gonna get it or the last bit that we have to hoard. 
And, and I had always approached it from that perspective. And so I've, I've tried over the years to try to change that mindset. That's hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I should say too, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a double-edged sword in the sense that some of the great opportunities of your life, like materialized and were capitalized on through that kind of fear. Like this is the last chance I'm going to have. You said, right? yes, but the thing is, is that you said yes to a lot of things and a lot of times people might shrink and say no, and you jumped in and tried things, even though you weren't necessarily sure how it was going to pan out. Sometimes that stuff works and sometimes it doesn't, but it's not all bad, I guess is my point. Sometimes that sort of yeah. attitude can lead you good places. Absolutely. And a lot of my saying yes has in, in more recent years has been because I've been waiting for my whole life for, for these things to happen, <laughs> as evidenced by my 10 year plan in 2005. Um, and, you know, people are, are ask me, well, you know, aren't you busy? And I'm like, you know, first, I always talk about how busy is a decision. You know, we make a decision to do what we want to do. But also when you wait for your whole life for certain things to happen, busy is really not the lead gene in what you're thinking about as you're trying to get things done. It's really more a matter of, utter gratitude that these things are even happening to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, like the, the, the other place that I struggle a little bit with, with abundance versus scarcity and with this idea of ambition and drive and wanting to succeed is that the, the ecology of the planet right now, like it yeah. seems to be telling us that we need to simplify. Yep. It seems to be saying to people like, look, you need to want less. You yes. need to consume less. And that doesn't always square with somebody, somebody's ambitions, you know, and vision for life. And like, I think it's trying to reconcile the two, reconcile the kind of the necessity of simplification and the necessity of lessening consumption with this idea that there's also abundance. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. But that also goes back to, and I love when there's symmetry in conversation, something we talked about very early on in, in our talk today, in that it really comes down to why are you, why are you driven for these things in the first place? Because we know from, from understanding why people want certain things that a lot of that want is is really just running on a hedonic treadmill where you're searching for something that as soon as you get it, you want something better. And that ultimate treadmill never stops if you're looking to fill up that mushy center. <laughs> you know, you can think about it. You know, for all the people that have, have strived in their life for a goal, was that the last goal you ever were working towards? No. It's just one in a series. And so, you know, we see this with the planned obsolescence in technology or fashion when things are just fashionable for a moment in time, or there's already plans for the iPhone 18, where we enjoy what we have at the moment for just a very brief period of time. And then we go on to the next. And that happens with everything. We are metabolism junkies our bodies metabolize pretty much everything and then want more to metabolize and that happens with food that happens with love that happens with purchases it happens with everything from the iphone to a pair of shoes to a car to our careers and our promotions and our accomplishments 
You know, I know people really, really, really accomplished, way more accomplished than I am in a completely different stratosphere that still struggle with feeling like they're not successful or they're <laughs> not good enough. And I'm like, oh, my God, if you're not successful, then I'm just a sludge. Yeah, that, that, that was like another question that I had for you is that all these uh, incredible achievers that you've spoken with, all these incredible creatives that you've spoken with over the years, do they seem happier than other people that you speak with? Do they seem more fulfilled and more deeply happy than somebody you might meet at the bodega or something? There, There's absolutely no way to be able to codify that. I think that, as I said earlier, I think happiness is contentment with what you have. And yes, I think a lot of people are, are really content with what they have on their best days. But that doesn't mean that they don't want more when they're wanting more. People want to grow. I mean, yeah. I, that's a little, it sounds a little treacly, but we do though, right? We want to yeah. like have new experiences and feel like we're moving towards something and getting a little bit better at life. That's I think so. That's human nature. I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, I think that uh, before I let you go, I would like to hear about some kind of fun personal stuff. Like, first sure. of all, I have been advised to ask you about a song that you created, composed about oh, your no, dog, you've Maximus. Been talking to my wife. <laughs> okay. You've been talking to my, my devious, mischievous <laughs> minx of a wife. I can neither confirm nor deny that this happened, <laughs> but I do want to ask you about a song that you composed about your dog, Maximus. Okay, go ahead. Tell me, what is this song? How did it originate? Was this part of your 10-year plan? <laughs> no. So, so Brad, I, I just love making up songs. I don't make up the melodies. I'm not, I, I wish, I wish with all my heart and soul that I was able to make melodies. I can't. I make up songs with new lyrics to old melodies. And I do this all the time, all the time. And so I created a song for our dog, which now has two stanzas. And um, <laughs> there's going to be a death in the family. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I'm working on stanza three, but, but it's not coming easily. But yeah, it's, it's called the Fluffinator song. <laughs> the, the Fluffinator. <laughs> the Fluffinator song. So, so Max, we have a multi-poo and he's very fluffy. And we started to, I started to call him because he's a fluffy muffin, a fluffin. <laughs> I also make up words, a yeah. lot of words. I'm a word maker. I, I understand. And uh, so fluffin turned into, he's a fluffinator. And that turned into the fluffinator song. Got it. May I ask what the appropriated melody is? I'm just going to sing one verse. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. Not not ready for this to go global yet. Okay. <laughs> fluffinator, fluffinator, tiny little dog. Fluffinator, fluffinator, you are not a frog. Fluffinator, fluffinator, we love you so much. Fluffinator, fluffinator, you've got the fluff in touch. <laughs> and then my young niece says, Fluffinator! 
and my wife wrote two of those lines, by the way, and I'll let you decide which two she wrote. I'm gonna have to. Li- <laughs> I'm gonna have to listen to playback and analyze this to try to parse it. Um, last thing I will ask you, I, I usually ask this of my guests before they go, is like, what are you, are you working on anything new? You're welcome to say nothing since you have this lovely book out, and you might just be recharging or you know in intake mode, but. You seem like the kind of person who's always got stuff going. I know you have that deck of cards. Yeah, yeah. Chronicle is going to be coming out with this wonderful, really creative deck of cards that um, I created with tons of artwork. I'm so proud of these little cards. It's a little deck that's going to come in a box with directions on how anybody can write their own 10-year plan and includes a little notebook. And so I'm, I'm in the midst of, of working on that, um, working with a, a museum that's going to be coming out, the Broadway Museum. And I'm working on the design of wallpaper for one of the rooms. I have a confidentiality agreement about what specifically I'm doing, so I can't really talk more about that. But it is an absolute dream come true to be doing something like this. Um, huge Broadway person. I love theater. And and I still have my ongoing work with Mershka Hargitay, who is the star of Law and Order SVU. And uh, she started a foundation to eradicate sexual violence in our world. And so we are working really hard on eradicating the rape kit backlog. And so that that work is, for obvious reasons, super important to me. Yeah, wonderful and inspiring. I should say, I'm going to do this 10-year plan. I took one of your courses getting ready for this. Yeah, so I'm like, I'm ready to overhaul my life at this point. I'm going to get into it. (laughs) Well, Uh, I will will send you, um, as soon as the deck is ready, I will send it to you. And I'm very happy to send you the direction so you can see sort of what I have planned and see if you want to start it without the cards and just by looking at the text. Wonderful. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Congratulations on 17 years and counting of Design Matters, the show. Congratulations on why Design Matters, the book, and then on all the rest of it. And also on your incredible songwriting skills. Uh, kudos. Thank you. A, Thank you. That's Thank the, now, you. is it, you know, I know with the Beatles, it was like Lennon McCartney. Yeah. I don't know how you guys are handling uh, credits for these songs, but. Well, I kind of like the way Gay Millman sounds for <laughs> lots and lots and lots of reasons. <laughs> All right, Debbie. Listen, wonderful to meet you. Dreamboat. Thank you so much. I can't wait to turn the tables and have you on my podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there we have it. That is Debbie Millman. And her new book is called Why Design Matters. Conversations with the world's most creative people. It is available where books are sold from Harper Design. You can find Debbie on the internet at DebbieMillman.com. She's on Twitter, where her handle is at Debbie Millman. She's also on Facebook, on Instagram, LinkedIn. Track her down. Again, the book is called Why Design Matters. Go get your copy right away. I feel like this uh, music is making me sound like I'm on NPR or something. I'm slowing down. Using like a more soothing voice than I normally do. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? Every single episode of this show is available for free. The entire archive, it's a listener-supported show. If you would like to support this program, you can do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. 
Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other P-P-L pod. For as little as $1 a month, you can support it. There are different tiers. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a coffee mug, a tote bag, a book club subscription. I will write you a letter. I will uh, sing you happy birthday on your birthday. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at other PPL.com. Don't forget, if you pre-order my novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, and you send me a, a screenshot of your proof of purchase, I will send you a note and some other people's stickers. Maybe I'll draw you a picture. Just go to bradlisty.com for more information on how to pre-order. All right. What else? Oh, yeah, the Other People Podcast has its own official app. Go get the app. It's a good app. It, too, is free. The Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel as well. Go search for it by name over at YouTube, Other PPL, and subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. It's free. Just push the subscribe button. That's all you got to do. It helps. Another way to help the show is to rate it and review it over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That helps other people find the show. The more ratings, the better. All right, I have some good ones in the pipeline, some good conversations coming your way. Stay tuned. Appreciate you listening. And I will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.